It's good to have you here. Welcome to Gateway again on Easter Sunday, and we're glad to have you here. And uh, we're going to be uh, talking a little bit this morning about the resurrection, kind of a big deal uh, for Christians. I'm going to start off, though, by uh, just uh, about three and a half weeks ago, uh, I was in Nicaragua. Actually, uh, Mike Lamb and I were there. Many of you know Mike. And we, uh, we did something that we've never done before. We always usually hang out on um, the west side of the country, usually around Managua and go up to Chinandega. But on this trip, we decided to go all the way across to the Caribbean Sea, and we got across by driving, so it was about a 15-hour drive, and we drove across. We ended up in Puerto Cabeza, that's on the Caribbean Sea, and we were staying at a hotel for a couple of nights, and I actually didn't take a picture of the hotel, I'm not sure why, I usually take pictures of everything. I did get a picture of the street, like, so I'm looking from outside my room, just looking down the street so it gives you kind of a you know when I say we were staying on the Caribbean Sea it you know it, this is what it looked like so um, and so we're staying at this uh, hotel and the hotel basically uh, I don't know how many rooms maybe there were 12 15 rooms in the hotel and we were on the second floor and we each had a room and um, there, when you would go outside the door, there was just a kind of a hallway, a breezeway that just opened up. And so you saw that basically that was my view going out. The rooms um, had no windows in them and which didn't actually bother me at first. I didn't think about it until um, the second night. So the second night that we were there, uh, was getting ready to go to bed and we had to catch a flight the next morning. There's one flight um, across the country per day and we needed to be on that flight so that we could get back to Managua and get on the flight to come home. We couldn't miss that flight. And uh, when I was getting ready to go to bed that second night, there was a lot of noise just outside my room. Uh, there was a little seating area and there were some people there and um, they were really loud and I could tell they were drinking a lot and having some fun and that was fine but I just I was getting ready to go to bed and I'm looking at the door and there's this uh, it's kind of a brass lock set on it really old school and it had a um, deadbolt on it and I kind of was thinking I don't really know this area really well I don't know this neighborhood well and they probably have deadbolts on the doors for a reason yeah I don't know so I thought maybe I'll just lock it just to be safe and so I locked the deadbolt and I just left the key in there in case I had to you know get out of the room in a hurry in the middle of the night not sure why um, and I went to sleep and it was fine and then I woke up about 3 30 in the morning and I woke up to a really loud noise and you know how you're kind of coming into consciousness and I'm like what is that noise I don't know what that is it's, it's loud maybe it sounds like a truck or something but I couldn't tell what it was because I'm in this room with no windows at all um, and I'm so I was thinking for a minute I wonder what that is and I thought, so I, I had a plan. I was super curious, but I didn't, I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I wanted to get up and see what it was, but I didn't want to fully wake up. So my plan was I'll leave the lights off and I'll leave my eyes mostly closed and I'll make my way through this room that I don't know. And um, I'll unlock, I knew the key was in the, in the lock. So that was, the, I'll unlock it, just open the door and look outside and I'll see what's going on. Because I suspected that it was raining. Now the reason that's a big deal is because I've been in Nicaragua a lot of times and when you go in March, it's the, it's the end of summer. It's the end of the dry season. It never ever rains where we are on the west coast, but we're on the Caribbean side. And I know that it rains sometimes on the Caribbean side and at 
seems like a trivial deal, but I wanted to be able to be like, hey, I saw, you know, I saw it raining in March. Like people would be like, wow, that's cool. So that was my plan. I was going to open the door and look out without ever really waking up and just see that it was rain and go back in my room. So I went to the door and I found the door and I found the lock and I'm trying to unlock it and I can't unlock it. I'm trying and it won't unlock and I, it's pitch black, you know, so I'm like p pulling the key. Anyway, so I reach a point, I'm like, I have to turn the lights on. And I had that moment where I'm like, Dude, how committed am I to finding out if it's raining or not? And I said, no, I gotta know. So I turn the lights on, now I'm fully awake. And I go back to the lock and I start turning it and I can't get it. I'm like, is this the right key? And it's not, I only have one key and it slips in and I can't, but I can't get it. I'm trying, I'm trying, half in, full in, trying really hard. At one point I thought, I'm gonna break this key in the lock and I'll never get back to the States ever again. I'll just be in this room forever. And I realized I was locked in the room. I realized that I, there was no, the only way I was getting out of that room was somebody from the outside was gonna have to let me out. And I had that moment, like, I don't know if it's just me. I had that moment where I sat down on my bed and I realized I was stuck in there and there's no windows. And I started to think, is it like, is there enough oxygen in this room? And you know, I'm kind of, it's kind of warm in this room and I'm trying not to panic. What if the, what if the hotel catches on fire and you know, like what if Mike just gets up in the morning and leaves and you know never gets me I just was trying not to panic and then I was thinking how can I let somebody know that I'm stuck in the room and that was a little tricky because um, I didn't have cell service in Nicaragua I did have a data plan but it wouldn't allow me to call and I couldn't text anyone on regular iMessage um, I did have WhatsApp so I could send messages through WhatsApp, but Mike didn't have WhatsApp. And so I, I thought about it for a minute and I thought, well, I'm just going to send him an email. Now, I don't know if he's checking his email, but I'll send him an email and hopefully he'll check his email. So I wrote, you know, Mike, help. I'm stuck in the room and I can't get out. And, um, and I sent it off and I immediately got a message back. Hi, this is Mike. I'm out of the office until the 16th. <laughs> If you're lucky, I'll check my uh, email at the end of the month, uh, goodbye. And that was it. And so I'm just, you're right, I'm staring at that. Well, maybe, I don't know. What am I gonna do? There's nothing I could do. So I thought, I'm just gonna go to sleep and just, you know, trust the Lord. So I laid down, uh, put my head on my pillow and kind of drifted in and out of sleep until seven o'clock. And at seven o'clock, there was a knock on the door. Now, I've been trying for the last few hours not to panic and not to be concerned there's not enough uh, oxygen in the room, you know, and trying. And I'm like, oh, I'm saved. It must, it's probably Mike. And I go to the door and I look at the people and it's not Mike. It's a lady from the hotel and she has breakfast. Now, the funny thing is I had specifically said, don't bring me breakfast in the morning. I don't want breakfast. But there she was with breakfast and I thought, that, that's God's answer right there. That's amazing. But I didn't know, I, I was pretty sure she didn't speak English. Uh, and uh, I don't really speak enough Spanish. So, and I, I didn't want to yell at seven in the morning through the door. It's a big thick door, there's no windows. So I thought, I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll rattle the door. I'll rattle the door and act like I, and she'll figure it out. It's Morse code in any language for help. I can't get out of the room. So I'm, I'm turning the key and it won't come and I'm, I'm jiggling the door and I, I look in the thing and she's just standing there, no expression, just kind of, Jiggle the door, jiggle the door, doing this. I look back and she's just sitting there with my breakfast, nothing, no movement, no expression, no nothing. So finally, in a desperate attempt, I, I tried to, you know, call through the door, this big thick wood door. Can you help me? I'm stuck in the room. And she's just looking at the door with no expression. So I did what you always do. This works when you don't speak the same language. You just speak slower. So can you help me? I'm stuck in the room. And she kind of moves a little bit. And I thought, oh, she's getting it. And then she moves. She goes to the room next door, knocks on the door. Mike opens the door, takes a breakfast in, and he eats my breakfast. And I'm stuck in the room.
and she's gone and I'm like, oh great, now what's gonna happen? So I'm sitting there, trying not to panic and finally there's a knock on the door and I look through and it's Mike and he's like, hey, what's going on? He's trying not to laugh and hey, what's happening? I'm like, I, I can't get out of this room. The door is stuck, uh, the deadbolt's stuck. I, I'm never leaving, like remember me. And uh, I'm like, is there a lock on the outside for the deadbolt? And he's like, yeah, there's a, so I slipped the key under and he unlocked the door and I got out and that was awesome. It was amazing. But the, the point is, there came a moment when I realized I was in a situation and I could not solve. I couldn't get myself out of the room. The only way I was getting out of that room is if someone else came and let me out. Today is Easter. And today we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Easter involves some closed and locked doors that are significant that I want to talk about in our time together this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father God, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this day that we set aside to remember Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, but more importantly, resurrected, raised from the dead. Father God, I pray this morning as we think about your word, as we think about the message of the cross, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring your word alive. Help us to focus on what we're talking about. Help us to, to brush away all the cobwebs that, that, that might distract us and to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. So we're talking about some doors this morning and uh, in your notes, the first door I wanna talk about is just the locked door. So the Easter story really begins at the beginning and by beginning I mean really the beginning of, of human history. So as Christians we believe that the Bible is God's revelation, it's God's word to us and so there are many things that we discover about life and one of them is the origin of life. The Bible tells us at the beginning that, that God created us we are created beings we are not cosmic random accidents God has created us God has designed us in Genesis 1 1 the Bible begins this way in the beginning that's the beginning of human history not the beginning of God who is eternal but the beginning of human history in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning God so we talk about this a lot but you know logically something has to be eternal Something has to have no beginning and no end. This is a concept that as human beings we can grapple with, but we'll never really in this life come to terms with the fact that something is eternal, whether it be matter or whether it be God. We, can, you know, we tend to think of, of um, time as something that moves. We, we, we imagine something being eternally existent that it goes, we just go back and back. But the truth is that if for something to be eternal, just there's no beginning, there is no end, and this is God, incomprehensible to us. But, but logically, something must be eternal. And the scriptures tell us that it's God and that God created, that he made, that he designed us, that he gifted us, that he made us in his image so that we have great value, great worth. It says he created the first people and placed them in the garden and he interacted with them and he created them with purposes. One time, a little later, somebody asked Jesus, you know, what's the, what's the main thing in life? And he said, it's, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. He said that it was love. It's love that is the main thing in life. He created us to know his love and to love him in return. When we say love, I don't mean love like our culture defines love today, some fuzzy feeling or, 
Love in scripture is basically, it's to trust someone, to honor them. In God's case, that, that our main goal is to bring glory to God and to obey him. It says if we love him, we will obey him because if we love him, we will trust him. But we know in the story that uh, another voice comes along. Remember, it's Satan who comes along and, and he says, hey, you know, why wouldn't you eat from that tree? He says, you know, God's holding back on you. Because God knows if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God and he doesn't want you to be like him. So God's lying to you. God's holding out on you. And, and you need to do, as we would say today, you should do you. That's what we say today, right? You do you. What does that mean? You just do whatever you think is right. Whatever you want to do. Don't worry about God. Don't worry about other people. You just do whatever you want. You call the shots. You're on the throne, which is exactly what they did. They disobeyed God. They called their own shots. They ate from the tree, and that's called sin. They sinned. And that sin not only infected them, but it's infected everyone who's come after them. In Romans 5, 12, it tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death entered, by the way, because of sin, and so death spread to all men because all of sin. And so scripture says, basically, that, uh, right, we sin because we were born sinners, but we're also sinners because we sin. It's what we do. And the result of Adam's sin really were two things. It said physical death entered into the world, and we don't really need to prove that point. We all know you could turn on the news any day and hear about death in the world. And many of us have experienced that. Uh, we've lost loved ones in our own life. So we understand that sting of physical death. But even more than that, spiritual death enters into the world because of sin. To Spiritual death simply means that our soul is dead. Our soul is disconnected from the source of life. And so we end up with this soul that is searching and that is trying to fill this void with anything. And in Romans chapter one, Paul's talking about this idea that all have sinned and that all have kind of suppressed the truth. Paul talks about the fact that everyone has suppressed truth. And when he talks about that, what he says is, you know, we've, maybe it's from uh, the Bible, maybe it's scripture we've read that we suppress. Maybe it's the natural world. So Paul talks about how the world itself is a, a testimony, is a billboard, that there is a creator. It doesn't tell us a lot about him, but it tells us he exists. And it says that we've even rejected that, that there's a creator. Our very conscience, our constitution that has been created in the image of God bears testimony that there is a God, a creator. And what Paul says is whatever amount of knowledge we have about God, the one thing we all have in common is we don't live up to what we know about him. We suppress that truth. J.C. Riley puts it this way. We deny the signs of God's eternal power that are found in creation. We refuse to acknowledge him as God. We abandon any sense of dependence and gratitude. We care nothing about what brings glory to God and we end up corrupting our own thought processes. In other words, our sin has impacted our soul and our mind and we are no longer able to really discern what's true and what's reality and even to understand our spiritual condition. All of sin, all falls short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners. Some sins are huge, some sins are not so big. I, I was reminded of this, reading a story this last week that maybe you saw. It was about uh, President Ulysses S. Grant. Let me just read a piece of this for you. In 1872, so first of all, you just kind of 
got to transport yourself back a little bit. Imagine 1872 in Washington, D.C. So in 1872, President Grant was speeding uh, down a Washington, D.C. street in his horse and buggy. In fact, a little more information will tell you. He had a buggy that was drawn by two horses. He was driving down the street and a buddy of his was coming down and, they, and they're very competitive and they got in a race. So they're drag racing in Washington, D.C. in their horse and buggies. And the story goes on. Um, and he... Um, and he was stopped by a policeman, an African-American by the name of William West. Officer West realized who he'd stopped and he said, Mr. President, you're going too fast. To which he replied, oh, I know I was going too fast. I promise I'll never do it again. Next day, Officer West get, again saw the president racing down the street. West stops him again and says, I'm going to have to arrest you. So he takes him to the station. West is a little embarrassed because after all, this is the President of the United States, but he did his duty. And President Grant apologized to the officer and admitted that he knew he was speeding and he deserved to be arrested and he told the officer not to feel badly about it. The President Grant understood the rule of law. He understood why laws are important, why citizens need to obey those laws. Nevertheless, he broke the law anyway and he did it repeatedly, even when he was warned about it. And my point is simply this. He's like every man. He knew what he was doing was wrong and he did it anyway. And that's what sin is. Sin becomes for us when we sin, Scripture says, like a prison. It becomes like a prison and we, we end up locked up in things like sinful thoughts and sinful thinking and sinful attitudes. We develop sinful actions and ethics and habits and then you know, we get guilt on top of that and shame and oftentimes we get caught in the consequences of our sin. Right? We see that a lot in our world. Someone sins, it brings around consequences that now they can't get out of. They're, they're stuck in those consequences. We cannot get out of that, that prison of sin. The door cannot be opened from the inside. D.A. Carson says this, our culture is so present-oriented that we've filtered out all depictions of any kind of final judgment. We are not frightened of hell at all. We are far more frightened of war, old age, sickness, disease, and bankruptcy. We are more frightened of temporal judgments than we are of final judgment. But sin brings a final judgment judgment on us from God and I think that today we live in a world where most people don't deny the concept that there are some things that are morally and ethically wrong we would probably agree with most people in our world that murder is wrong that physical and emotional abuse is wrong theft is wrong maybe not everyone would agree on that slander is wrong exploiting is wrong prejudice is wrong and yet at the same time Surveys continue to show that most people, even though they'll admit they do wrong things, most people consider themselves not trapped in sin, not stuck in sin, and they don't think that their sin is as bad as most other people's sins. They think, my sin is not that bad. Most people say, I can stop anytime I want. My intentions are good. And if God is grading on a curve, and this is a big one, most people say, if God is grading on a curve, I'm gonna be okay because I'm nothing like the people around me and the sins that they commit. But scripture says that all have sinned, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And when we sin, it becomes our prison and we cannot escape that prison on our own. Which brings us to a second door. I'm gonna call it an entry door, right? So we're locked in a prison of our sin. 
And for thousands of years, God saw us, had compassion on us, and reached out to us. He did it by sending prophets who encouraged people to stop their sin and and to turn to God through giving his word. He did it through miracles and spiritual leaders and, and priests and kings, and he rescued people, and he made a way for people to deal with their sin through sacrifices. You can go to the Old Testament and read about the sacrificial system, and what we understand is that that goats and sheep and animals would be sacrificed because without a shedding of blood, scripture says there's no remission of sin. But it wasn't the blood of those animals that forgave sin, it was trusting that God would make a way. People were looking to God to make a way for their sin to be forgiven, but it was a never ending process because new sin required new sacrifices. And so this goes on for thousands of years until just the right time, And at just the right time, it tells us, God sends his ultimate solution, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus came on a rescue mission. It's why he came. He didn't come to lecture us. He came to save us. In Luke 19, 10, it tells us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's us. And so Jesus walks through the door, if you will, between heaven and earth. I mean, it's, it's maybe not a physical door, but it's certainly there. He goes from uh, being a place that is eternal to being a place where there is time, to being a, a place where he is omniscient and all-knowing and everywhere, to being stuck in a body, right? He lives in a body like ours. He enters into time and space. He has limitations like we have physical limitations. He's living in the messiness of this place. But, He was different because scripture says he lived a sinless life. And during that life, during his ministry, he revealed God to us. There were a lot of misconceptions about God as there are today. Jesus set us straight. He taught truth. He worked miracles. He healed. He fed. He loved. He even raised a few people from the dead. And he spoke words that are so deep, so profound, that 2,000 years later, people still get together every weekend and they study them and they research them and they memorize them and they open up their Bibles every day and they read them. But there's a, there's a plot twist in the story. You, you know this if you know the gospel. That ironically, the people he came to seek and save were the same people who rejected him. Which should really not surprise us too much if you just go back in human history you find that's pretty much always been the way we worked. Now why would people reject him? Well as you study through the gospels and we're going through the book of John right now what we're discovering is that some people didn't like his teaching. He was too confrontive. They didn't like that he was telling them to to repent and calling them out on their sin. Some people didn't like the company that he kept. Uh, Some people didn't like the the way he worked miracles. Right, it wasn't just that he worked miracles. They didn't like the day he did it on or who he did it to or how he did it. They just forgot the miracle and they just didn't like the way he did it. Some people didn't like his claims. He, he made exclusive claims like I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to God but through me. The religious leaders decide at some point they have to get rid of him and so they conspire to have him arrested and to put him to death. Uh, The political leaders condemned Christ because it was just politically expedient. They didn't want riots and they didn't want problems with the Jews and the religious leaders. Which takes us to our next door, which is uh, a a tomb door. One that we're familiar with when we think about Easter. We know the story. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. Judas has decided uh, to betray him. Uh, He goes, Jesus and the disciples go to the garden where they pray. Judas brings some soldiers. Jesus is arrested in the garden at night, away from crowds. 
He goes through three religious trials. All of them are um, conducted illegally. He appears before Pilate and, and Herod for interesting conversations and goes back to Pilate. Eventually, Pilate doesn't want to have him put to death. He, he puts Jesus before the crowd and says, what do you want to do? He's sure they'll say, you know, let him go. But they follow the leader, the religious leaders, and they yell, crucify him. And so the crucifixion process begins. Jesus is taken, stripped down. He's whipped to within an inch of his life. They make a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They march him up a hill where they're going to crucify him. In fact, we pick up the story in John chapter 19, verse 16. It tells us this. So he, that is Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. It just means that they, they put that cross down on the ground. They threw him down on there. They nailed him to that cross. They hoisted that cross up. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. In Matthew 27, it says, so also the chief priests, but the scribes and the elders, they, they walked by as he was dying on that cross. They mocked him. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him, right? Even after all the miracles that he's worked, they'd say this. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God, which they understood meant that he was God. D.A. Carson puts it this way. I think he puts it well. He says, God knows that in one profound sense, if Jesus is to save others, he really cannot save himself. We say that it was not the nails that kept Christ on the cross. It was his love. It was his commitment to us that kept him there. Can you just imagine as, as people are walking by, laughing at him, hurling abuse at him, making fun of him, mocking him, and him knowing the whole time that the only thing that keeps him on that cross is his love for the very people that are mocking him. The scripture says that the penalty for sin is death. God is just. He cannot simply excuse sin. Scripture says that sin is so serious that blood must be shed for it. I know that's often lost on us because we downplay sin. But God is also love. God made a way for us. Even though we were dead in our sin, even though we were trapped in that room, in that prison of our sin, God loved us too much to leave us there. He makes a way for us to get out of that prison. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther talks about this as the great exchange. We've mentioned that so many times. He says that what Christ does on the cross is he takes all of your sin, every sin you've ever committed and ever, ever will, and he takes that on himself. The horror of that sin, all of that sin he takes upon himself and he dies on a cross for that sin. And when you place your faith in him, he offers you his righteousness. That is a right standing with God. No guilt, no shame, no works, just the gift that God has for you in Christ when you trust him. And so they crucified Christ on a Friday. A follower named Joseph asked Pilate for the body. In Matthew 27, it tells us this, and Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. 
So the Sabbath was about to begin and Jews could not touch a dead body, couldn't go, you know, couldn't prepare the body for burial once the sun set. So they very quickly moved him to this tomb and they were, the plan was to wait until dawn on Sunday. And they rolled a large stone in front of the tomb. We're told that it was sealed and that there were guards placed there. This is the kind of room that people don't get out of, right? A tomb is for dead people. And they are just, that's where they stay. And that's where everyone thought Jesus would stay. But we know that Easter is about more than that. It's also about an open door. Now when you read the Gospels, what you discover is that after the death of Christ, the disciples, amazingly enough, are in shock over what's happened. They didn't understand that Jesus came to die on that cross, even though he told them multiple times that he, that's what he was going to do. See, what they thought was that he would use his miraculous power to overthrow the Roman government and to set up a new kingdom of God. And, and they thought, well, he might do some other things, but he would at least do that. And when he died, their hopes died with him. On Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave, the disciples were not there in lawn chairs, you know, with a, some Starbucks and a countdown clock and, you know, they're waiting, the sun's gonna rise and Christ is gonna, they're not there because they saw him die and they expected him to stay dead. In Mark chapter 16, we, we pick up the story of Easter morning. It says, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might go and, and anoint him. So here's, here's the plan. They need to finish getting his body ready for burial. And now Sunday morning has come and it's okay for them to do that. And so they're going to the tomb. What are they going with? With spices because they're gonna finish preparing the body for burial. They saw him die and they expected him to be inside. In fact, not only that, it says very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. So they expect the stone to be there and the guards to be there and the seal to be there and the body to be inside. That's why they went. They expected him to be dead. Matthew uh, adds some details for us. Kind of back up a little bit and start again. In Matthew 28, 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake. So Matthew gives us a little more detail. A severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and he sat on it. That would be a pretty cool assignment, wouldn't it? Like I need you to go down, there's gonna be an earthquake and you're gonna roll away the stone and you're just gonna sit on top of it, right? You'll just be hanging out up there when people come by. That sounds like a great job. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who's been crucified. But he's not here for he is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. And so they go in and they see that he's not there. But they don't really put it all together, right? This is, because again, it's so ingrained in them that he's going to stay dead that they think 
Somebody stole the body. So they go back to the disciples who are in the upper room and they're like, we had a problem. We went to the tomb. Jesus is not there. Now John gives us a part of the story that I love. One of my favorite parts. John says in John 23, so Peter went out with uh, the other disciple and they're going toward the tomb. So let me just give you a little background. You may know this, but this is written by John the disciple, John the apostle. And John never names himself in this book. He's always the other disciple or the disciple. Jesus loved and so he tells the story that Mary goes back and we don't know where the body is and so Peter and the other disciple that's John as John's telling the story they're both so they start what let's go check it out and they they're walking and then it says uh, both of them now are running but the other disciple out around Peter and reached the tomb first so this is just John's kind of passive aggressive way of saying so we were walking and then we got in a foot race and by the way I won just thought I put that in the Bible forever that people know I won that race but remember we, we think Peter's the oldest and John's the youngest of the disciples and says so and so stooping to look in John saw the linen cloth laying there but he did not go in because he's young and he's inexperienced he's probably 19 he's like I'm not going in that place that's a tomb but then Simon Peter came following him and you know Peter Peter's just Peter and he just goes right in and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus head not lying with the linen cloth but folded up in a place by himself like Jesus made his bed before he got up and went out into the world I love that and then Luke adds this. This is so great. Uh, Luke says, and they went away wondering to himself what had happened. I love it says Peter went away wondering. All these years later, we look and go, what is he wondering about? Even after hearing the story from the women that the, to, that the body wasn't there. Even after seeing the empty tomb. He didn't break into song. He, he didn't gather a choir and start singing. You know, he's alive. He didn't celebrate. He didn't go out preaching the gospel. He wondered. He went back to the upper room. He closed the door and he locked the door. That's what he did. Now Mary goes back to the tomb. Jesus appears to her. She thinks he's the gardener. It's a great story. When she realizes that it's Jesus, she falls down to worship him. She goes back to the disciples, locked in the upper room, and she tells him, I just saw Jesus. And then a little bit later, some other disciples come and go, we were just walking down a road, hanging out with this guy, and it was Jesus. So all these reports are coming in, hey, we've seen Jesus. And they're on the upper room, locked in there. Now, a question I was thinking about this week was, when did Jesus walk out of that tomb? Now we don't really, we're not told exactly when he walks out of that room. Some theories are he walked out of the tomb before the tomb, before the stone was rolled away. That's certainly possible. I think that may have happened. I, we don't know, but here's what I do know. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out of the tomb, but so that we could get in. So we could see there's no body there. So we could see that he really has risen from the dead. Now later that evening, uh, when Jesus had risen from the grave, in John chapter 20, 19, we read this. Now on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Right? So the door is locked because they're afraid that the people who killed Jesus are coming for them next. They, were, they succeeded, they were, maybe they were emboldened, and so the disciples are scared. So they're in this room with the door locked. It's been noted the irony here. On the greatest day in the history of the world, a day where God defeated sin and death, his closest followers are not out celebrating, they are hiding in fear. 
they're inside, they are trapped in their own fear and they're behind a locked door and it says this. It says, and Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's been noted many times that one of the details were not given. It doesn't say he knocked on the door, he had a key from the outside, he unlocked the door, he just went through, he just, the door wasn't open, he just walked through the door. His resurrected body has changed. He, he can still interact with people. His feet touch the ground. You know, he could, he could eat. He's gonna eat with people. Uh, they could touch him. And, uh, but he wasn't bound in our three dimensions of, of space. He could, he could walk through doors now. Verse 20, and after this, he, uh, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed. They're, it's, they're, they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand what they're seeing. They're starting to understand the ramifications. If Jesus is risen from the dead, right, then this changes everything. And he says to them again for a second time, peace be with you. Peace be with you is not simply a, a, a greeting for them, right? He's, he's not, notice that he doesn't say, why are you locked in this room? He, he isn't belittling them. He isn't shaming them. He isn't guilting them. It says, he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and his side. And showing them his hands and his side is not a, a simply a form of ID, like here's how you can know it's me. They are proof. They are proof that the peace he is declaring to them is grounded in what he's done. He simply says, look at the wounds and, and when I say peace to you, this is not like a peace you've ever heard before. This is a peace that is not, you know, tied to your circumstances and, and the world. It is a peace that is founded, that is grounded in the work of Christ. That we have a Savior who lived and who died and who rose from the dead. And now we can have peace with God. Peace with God. Because Jesus has unlocked the door to sin and to death. And then we can enter into the life that he promises to us. Later on, Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians. He would say, for I have delivered to you as of first importance. Paul says, there's a lot of things I could tell you, but here's the most important thing I will ever tell you. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, just as God had always said, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12. He's simply saying this, Christ has conquered death. He died, but he didn't stay dead. And he has conquered sin. And in fact, he becomes the door, if you will, to forgiveness and to new life. That's what he says in John 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. His sins will be forgiven. He will have eternal life and he will go in and out and find pasture. That is life. New life comes from outside ourselves, not inside ourselves, not from looking inside, but looking outside looking to the one who did all of the work to Christ who came for us and lived for us and died for us and rose for us and scripture says when we trust him he opens the door of our prison of sin and he lets us out for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him whoever believes in him it says God gives eternal life in Romans 10 it tells us this notice if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, I love that, that concept of all the things he could point out. If you believe that God raised him from the dead, because if God raised him from the dead, then that changes everything. And he says, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes. 
That word believe is simply the word trust in the Greek. It means to trust Christ. It means to trust his person. That he is who he said he was. That he was God in the flesh. That you trust his works. The things that he did for you. That you trust his words. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then we should listen to what he said. Right? About God and himself. About sin. About us. About getting right with God. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Made right before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's simply saying that faith is a, is a public faith. It's a public thing. That when we, when we trust in Christ, we don't confess so that we'll be saved. We confess because we can't help but confess. Because a heart that believes is a heart that will express itself. And so the outward manifestation of, of the inward work of God in our heart is that we have to confess. We must confess. Well, we've already been confessing this morning. We did it through song. Right? We did it in prayer that we confess that Jesus is Lord. So I just simply say this. If, if you walked in here this morning as a believer, if you came in here this morning with faith, I hope that you're encouraged today. I hope that as you walked in here, maybe you walked in here excited this morning you know, and you're like, he's risen indeed. Or maybe you walked in here and you're like, I really need some more coffee and you know, I'm not a nine o'clock person. I hope that you can be encouraged and I hope that you will be filled with the passion of the Holy Spirit for a soul that has been brought to brand new life. Because folks, the, the resurrection of Christ has changed everything for those of us who believe. We have reason to be encouraged. We have reason to be excited because Christ is risen from the dead. If you came in here this morning and you have never, never placed your faith in Christ, I want you to know this. I want you to know that, that right now, right here, you can confess Christ. You can believe in your heart. If, if you are feeling that call this morning from God, you need to understand that's a work of God in your heart. That's not you being convinced by me, but but by God, by the Holy Spirit. Here's my counsel to you. If God is tugging on your heart and pulling you to faith, don't resist him. Believe this morning. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you can do that right now. In fact, I'm just gonna pray for us and uh, we're gonna sing a song and be done, but I wanna, I wanna pray for you very quickly. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this, this story that is rooted in in reality that is rooted in history, that is rooted in, in your son who actually came, who was born into this world, who walked on this earth, who interacted with people. For the one who was actually crucified on a real cross, who is buried in a real tomb, but who raised from the dead, and in doing so conquered death and conquered sin and offers to us today to do something we could not do for ourselves. We would never be able to, by good works, unlock the prison, uh, the door of our sin. But Christ offers to us the key, and that is himself, risen from the dead. Father God, I pray for everyone who walked in here this morning as a believer, having trusted that we would be encouraged in our faith that the Holy Spirit would strengthen and embolden us today. But I pray also for anyone who walked in here this morning having never placed their faith in your son. And if, that, if that's you this morning, right, do not resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Surrender to Christ. 
believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. And, and you don't have to walk an aisle to do that. You don't have to do any good work. You simply have to, you simply have to trust in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And you can do that right now where you are. And I encourage you to do that, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Father God, I pray for any who have done that this morning, that your spirit would enter into them, save them, forgive them of their sins, seal them, and give them new life in Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who came, who lived, who died, who rose, and who saves all who believe in him. We thank you that he is risen indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 